Welcome to the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. This episode contains a sermon from October 3rd by Pastor Randy, titled, The Seven Churches of Revelation, The Church of Laodicea. Living in Alaska and living in Anchorage, we know what it's like to have our air filled with smoke. A couple of years ago, when the Kenai fires were raging, most of the summer, it was difficult. Smoke everywhere. This past summer, we had smoke, but it was coming mostly from Siberia and left sort of a haze over our mountains from the fires in Siberia. But a lot of places, they don't have smoke. They got something much worse. They have smog. And we have, a few, I think, a few Fairbanks people here, right? They know what that inversion layer is like down in the city that all the fireplaces are burning and, and the, the, that smog doesn't go anywhere because the inversion layer, and it gets pretty bad there. Pretty bad in cities like L.A. also. In fact, sometimes it gets so bad there that there's people in the hospital because of respiratory issues, because of the, the smog is so bad. One time the meteorologist on the TV station said, look, the only thing that can help us at this point is if a wind comes in from somewhere else and blows the smog out of here. Well, let's sort of use that as an analogy. Because right now we live in a culture where there's political smog everywhere. There's no such thing as civil debate anymore among our politicians. It's just uncivil arguing. They're like six-year-old kids on the playground just fighting over toys. But what they're fighting about is our lives. We live in a culture where we're just surrounded by political smog. Not just that, there's a moral smog in our culture. Because the things that, that God says are, are wrong, we have people in our culture, in our states, in our government that stand up and saying these things are right, these things are good. And things that God says is good, they're just saying the opposite too. We have this, this moral smog. We have unborn children still being murdered in the womb. It's just a moral smog. But not just that, it gets a little bit worse because there's also a spiritual smog going on in our culture. Because what's going on in our culture, a lot of times it's in the church. And people in, in the church aren't so much concerned about sharing the gospel or who they can love and who they can forgive and, and, and who they can serve. Instead, in the church, a lot of times it's, it's all about me and how can I justify my views and, and justify what I want and live the life that I want to live. So we live in a time of, of spiritual smog. And the only thing that can save us, the only thing that can help us out is if a wind comes from somewhere else and blows that smog out of here. Now, for the last couple of years, that wind has been called revival. That that's what we desperately need. Ever since I was in college, I always learned, learned learning about revivals. They've always fascinated me. Uh, the, the one was the, the prayer revival in 1857. A guy by the name of Jeremiah Lanfear, he started a, a little prayer meeting in the upper room of a Dutch Reformed church in New York City. He decided, we're going to pray together. We're going to meet between noon and one, and we'll do it every week. 
The first time, six people showed up. The second week, 14 people showed up. The third week, 23 people showed up. And it wasn't long before that place was filled. Oh, runaway child. Catch her quick. The place was filled. And then they went from meeting once a week to meeting every day. But that still wasn't enough. And it wasn't long before every church and every town hall, every meeting place in downtown New York was filled with people. One reporter tried to make it to as many prayer meetings as he could to count how many people were there. He made it to about a dozen uh, during that noon to one o'clock hour. He counted over 6,100 men in those prayer meetings. At one time, at the height of this, there were 10,000 people a week being converted to Christianity. And as it spread, it made its way to Chicago. And Chicago, they estimated they had as many as a million people come to Christ in a year. Here's some of the headlines in the newspapers during this time. City's biggest church packed twice daily for prayer. Another from Connecticut. Businesses shut down for an hour each day. See, businesses would agree with each other that they'd all shut down between noon and one. And so they, they just, you know, we don't want anybody to cheat and stay open. So they all just shut down together. In Albany, state legislators get down on their knees. That's one that you'd love to read, wouldn't it? How about this one? Ice on a Mohawk broken for baptisms. You got to be on fire for God when you break ice to be baptized. All right. Washington, D.C., five prayer meetings go around the clock. New Haven, Connecticut, revival sweeps Yale. That would be one you'd like to hear about Yale, any Ivy League school these days, for that matter. Probably my favorite revival is uh, the, the Welch Revival in 1904. What marked that revival was, was widespread restitution. Uh, people uh, began paying all outstanding debts. Nobody owed anything. Arrest for drunkenness went down to zero. Not only did bars close down, gambling houses closed down, theaters closed down. People lost interest in sports, players and, 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 sport and, and, and the, the players and the fans alike. They just sort of lost interest. Political meetings, nobody cared. They didn't show up in any political meetings. But my favorite thing about that revival it, it, it seen, I've seen copies of the article in the newspaper. It said there's a slowdown at the mines. There were so many people converted to Christ that there was a slowdown at the mines. You got to, why are people slowing down at the mines? I mean, now they're Christians. They should be working harder, doing their job. Yes, they were. But the problem was because they became Christians, because they got right with God, their language changed and the pit ponies couldn't understand what they were saying now. Not only that, in Ireland... The Catholic Church was urging their members to buy holy water, sprinkle it on themselves, or even drink it to help uh, make them immune from the effects of the revival. And then when it made it over to the United States, when it came across Atlanta, uh, when the, the Welsh Revival of 1904 came across the Atlantic and made it across here, Atlantic City at that time had a population of about 50,000 people. And they estimated that there wasn't any more than 50 people who were unconverted in that whole city. Revival. When people not only begin to rewrite with each other, they begin to be right with God. When they begin to, to walk in purity, to, to walk in holiness, when, when there's restitution of marriages and broken relationships. 
But there are probably two big things that, that, that keep revival from happening, that, that keep revival from happening, going on where it needs to happen. The first one is this, is, is a lack of faith. You remember when Elijah is on top of Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal and are having that little battle going back and forth and whose God can come down and, and light the sacrifices on fire and, and, and bring fire down from heaven? And all of Israel is there. And here's the thing. Whose God can do this? Israel doesn't know. They're not sure if Yahweh can do this or not. Because in that day, they, they were kind of like this. You know, we want to be forgiven our sins. We'll go to Yahweh. We want our crops to grow. We'll go to Baal. And, and so they, they were kind of, they didn't know if God could really do something like this or not. Can there be such a movement of God, a heaviness of his presence in a place where a people or a church or a city or a nation all come running back to God? A lot of times people, God's people just aren't sure. This verse in Matthew 13, 58, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. When people don't have the faith to believe, well, God's not going to show up. And so a lot of times revival doesn't happen when it needs to happen because people, they just don't have enough faith to believe that God can actually do something. But the main reason, I don't guess it's really the main reason, but the second reason we're going to dwell on for the rest of the sermon today is a lot of times the reason we don't see revival is because we just don't think we need it. We just don't think we need it. Now let me repeat something that you've heard me say many, many times, and, 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 I, and I know you have, but, but we, we talk about how our culture is growing darker and it's decaying more and more, and how that's not the fault of the culture, that's the fault of the church, because we cease to be salt and light. And you agree with me on that. Yes, it's our fault, but usually church people who agree with me on that, they'll say, yep, that's other people in church and not me. They're the ones I'm really doing okay. That's where a, a lot of people are at today. The big thing that keeps revival from happening is a self-sufficient spirit. And I've got this type of attitude. Until we're ready to admit our own personal need for revival, we will never see it. See, people can unknowingly drift away from God, but people don't unknowingly come back to God. You may drift away from God and not realize it, but the only reason you can get back right with God is if you intend to, is if you make a decision that that's what you're going to do. You have to be willing to admit your need. Because as long as we don't think we have a need, God's not going to do anything. You remember the Pharisees in Jesus' day? They thought... They're in God that they were tight. Man, we know God. We're tight with God. But that's the furthest thing from the truth. Jesus would look at them and actually see them as enemies of God. See, breakthrough never comes to a satisfied people. We need to be at that point of desperation. How many times in Scripture do we see where Jesus responds to somebody because they're just so desperate. 
And we will never see revival as long as we feel self-sufficient and there's no sense of desperation. Here's what I want you to grasp. In times of revival, God's people experience His presence in ways they never thought possible. Now, why is that? Why is it that people experience God's presence in ways they never thought possible? It's because they're so far away from God, they didn't realize it. They didn't realize how far away they were. Their life had become filled with prayerlessness. Their life had become filled with, with so many other things besides God. Now they're chasing after hobbies or, or, or sports or, or social media or, I don't know, competitive dog grooming or, or whatever. Just filling their lives full of things, just stuff. They've gotten so far away from God. They just are all into other things. So they stop being desperate for God, stop seeking God. We've gotten so used to doing the Christian life without the power of God that we don't even know what it would look like for his presence to be so overwhelming that all our hobbies, all our interests, YouTube, social media, TV, all that would just sort of fade away. We have no clue what that would look like. We have no conception of that. The truth is, gradual compromise and affluence has led us to be completely ineffective as Christians. As long as we're content to live without revival, we will. So now enter the church of Laodicea. We've been going through these churches. And here comes the church of Laodicea. This is the one that I've heard, you know, supposedly describes us. And I guess has for a long time, but ought to become a reality to us. Before we get to that, let me just tell you some things about Laodicea. Because as I said before, when Jesus writes these churches, he referenced things about what's physically going on in the city, physically going on around them, and he wants to, to bring spiritual truths out of that. So let me help describe the church of Laodicea. That'll help you understand the spiritual truths that he's talking to this church and the spiritual truths that he wants to, re to tell us to have our eyes open to. First of all, the thing about Laodicea is a very rich city. It was a banking center. Very wealthy. There weren't any little compact three-cylinder chariots running around. No, everybody was in their big SUVs and, and Mercedes chariots. In fact, when the earthquake in AD 60 came, it wiped out Laodicea. They told Rome they didn't need any what amount of federal disaster relief. They could rebuild themselves, and they did. So it was very wealthy. Not only was it very wealthy, it was a fashion center. Because they raised a sheep that, that, that had a black wool and they would make garments from that black wool and they exported them all over the known world. Not only that, they had an eye salve there that they produced that was known as the only cure for faulty vision. And they, they exported that all over the world too. So when people drove by the church in Laodicea, their response is, what a nice little church full of good people. They're doing pretty good. But that was not Jesus' observation. Let's read what he starts out. He says this, Write to the angel in church of Laodicea. Thus says the Amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the originator, I like this verse, the originator, the source of God's creation. So thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness. Oftentimes when Jesus was speaking the gospel, he began, before he had something to say, he began it with verily, verily, or truly, truly, or amen, amen, depending on your version that you have. Because in that day, like today, if somebody was speaking, they said something that they agreed with, they'd say amen, or that's true, yes, I agree with that. But when Jesus spoke, he would say amen or verily, verily, truly, truly before he spoke. To say, hey, what I'm about to tell you is true. I don't need your confirmation about it. It's just true. And what Jesus wants to say to us today about this church is true. You may agree with it or not. It's just the way it is. Then he says this. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. Now, what does he mean? That I'd rather you be cold or hot, just not lukewarm. I remember hearing stuff about this when I was growing up, teenager in church. And, and what I remember the comments were is that God would rather have you totally turned off to him or totally turned on to him, just not in the middle. Kind of makes sense. But if you think about it, it kind of doesn't make sense. I mean, I would rather somebody just ignore me than come and hit me in the face. I'd rather somebody not hold the door open for me than to slam it in my face. So, so God would never say, hey, just totally reject me or totally be turned on. Just don't be in the middle. That doesn't sound like my God that wants all people to come to him. If you want to understand what he's saying there when he talks about that, you have to understand just a little bit more about the city of Laodicea. Laodicea did not have an independent water source, which means they had to get their water from other places. There was a hot springs outside of town, and they built an aqueduct that came from that, <coughs> came from that hot springs and into the cistern where everybody would come and get their water in the city. In fact, there still remains that aqueduct today. You go over there and see it. I've seen pictures of it. I haven't been there, but I've seen pictures of that. Some places still standing, other places fall down, but you can still see the aqueduct that they brought that hot water from the hot springs into the city. Also, spring water came from Colossae and flowed through. And so they'd bring the spring water from Colossae and that hot spring water uh, from outside of town and that would come together. And when it came together, it was sort of a lukewarm water. Now, I know you guys have no clue about this, being raised around here in the north in Alaska. But let me tell you about when I would grow up in New Orleans and we would go run and play because we had a bunch of kids there and we'd be... And, and we'd be playing football or something out on the bullet. We had a big boulevard. We played it. I drove through that a couple of years ago, and it's shrinking a whole lot. It used to be so big when I was a little kid. Uh, but we'd play football or play in the street or something like that. And then on a summer day, and then we'd just go find a, a house that had a water hose that was nearby. If we saw water, we'd just go there and, and open and start drinking. But that water hose sitting out in that sun and you try and take some of that water out of that water hose before it's had time to run through and, and clear that out, it would literally make you sick. You, you, could, you just could not drink it. Your stomach couldn't handle it. See, on a hot day, a cold drink is good. On a cold day, a hot drink is good. Nobody wants lukewarm anything, do they? 
You don't go to a restaurant and see hot food, cold food, lukewarm food. Even you coffee drinkers. It's not hot coffee or now it's iced coffee or cold coffee and lukewarm coffee. Who's going to buy lukewarm coffee? Nobody wants that. See, hot water is good for cleansing, it's good for bathing. Cold water is, is good for refreshing and drinking. Lukewarm water that just does what Jesus says it does to him. It, it, it makes us sick. Now here's the thing about this letter to Laodicea. Of all the letters that Jesus writes that we've been walked through, this is the sternest of the seven. This is the only church that he has nothing good to say about at all. Other churches made him angry. This church makes him sick. This church is one that just he can't physically deal with. Why? Because they don't offer him any refreshment. They have no sense of, of pursuit after God. They have no sense of, of I've got to have him. I've got to be with him. I've got to have him part of my life. They're just thinking, they're just going on thinking, everything's okay. You remember when, that, when Mary came and broke that jar of perfume over Jesus' head before his, his crucifixion, sort of getting him anointed for his burial, and his disciples said, what a waste. And what did Jesus say? No, no, no. That's not a waste. In fact, what she's done is going to be spoken about for all time. It's going to be put in the gospel. Everybody's going to be speaking about her from now on. Why? Because she's brought refreshment to my spirit. She's taken something and she's given it her all. She sought me out with intensity in that. You can call it what you want. You can call it mediocrity. You can call it indifference. You can call it lukewarmness. It's one of our biggest obstacles. G. Campbell Morgan, a revival preacher, he said that lukewarmness is the worst form of blasphemy. Why is that? Because it leads to a powerless Christianity. That's why it leads to a Christianity, as we'll see in a few minutes, without God. So why are they lukewarm? He tells us in the next verse. The reason they're lukewarm, for you say, so they have their opinion of themselves, I'm rich. I become wealthy. I don't need anything. And you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. See, they thought they were doing okay. They thought they had it all together. They assumed because they lacked nothing physically that they were on the right track. They felt self-sufficient. Jesus' viewpoint of them is completely the opposite. No, no, no. You're not rich, you're poor. You're not well-clothed, you're naked. You don't have any spiritual sight of all. Here's the thing I want you to understand. One of the toughest things for people to do is to look in the mirror and say, I have a problem. So difficult. But that's what Jesus does to, to this group is to say, look, you don't think you have a problem, but you have a problem. You think that, that, that spiritually you're rich? No, no, no. As far as I'm concerned, you're poor. You think you're clothed with righteousness or humility or love or anything else that, that I want you to be clothed with? No, you're really naked. You don't have any of that stuff in your life. There's no real righteousness. There's no real love. There's no real humility. There's no real kindness or gentleness in your life. 
And you can't see spiritually what's going on in front of you. You're blind. Back a few years ago, Bruce Larson, he's a uh, Christian writer. He was taking a, a vacation in California with his family. And they're bike riding down a bike trail, like bike trails like we have here. And so he's bike riding down the bike trail. He sees a sign that says naturalist camp. Thought nature trail. My kids will love this. So he turns down it. <laughs> and pretty soon he understands what naturalist camp is all about. Because coming that way is six bike riders all completely nude. And so they pass him up. And he's wondering, how are my kids going to react to this? And his five-year-old son says, Dad, they weren't wearing their helmets. How do you miss naked? How do you miss that? And it's the same with the church Laodicea. Spiritually, they have nothing. They can't see what's going on around them from God's perspective. They have no spiritual eyes. They're blind. They're not clothed with anything that God tells us to, to put on in our lives. They're completely naked. They think they're rich. They have nothing. How do you miss that? It's not because they couldn't see it. It's because they didn't want to see it. It was so much easier for them just to go on with their life than to admit what they really needed. To admit their real condition. So here's what we come up with. Here's what he says. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be zealous and repent. So there's a way out of this, he's saying. You can come to me and get what you need. You can come back to me. You can, be, you can reconnect to me. And then he says this, the next verse. See, I stand at the door and knock. If you want to hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, we use that verse for evangelism, but that verse is not meant to be evangelistic. That verse is written to the church. So what's that verse saying? It's telling us you can do church without Jesus. You can do your life without Jesus. You think everything's okay. It's not. He's on the outside. And we live in a culture that has been learning for decades how to do the Christian life without Jesus. We're doing okay. We don't need to pursue after God. We don't need to want repentance. We're doing okay. We're okay where we're at. It should get our attention that it's possible to do church or to do the Christian life without Jesus. So, 1947. Off the coast of Scotland. Hebrides Islands. There's a group of guys, seven of them, who decide that in their culture, Things aren't going well. 
That there's no desire for spiritual things in their culture. That, that people sort of drifted away from pursuing after God in their culture. Things just aren't going very well at all. So what they decide they're going to do, they're going to meet together and pray for their culture. Pray for God to do something. So they would work all day, go home, have dinner with their family, spend the evening with their family, get all their kids, their family in bed. And then after everybody was in bed, they would leave and they would go to a barn together and pray. Every day. This went on every night during winter, during summer. For two years, they were faithful. Sometimes there was four of them. Sometimes there were seven of them. You know, that varied a little bit. But there were always some of them there praying. And after two years, one night, while they're there, it dawned on them. You know, we've been praying for our culture. Because we see the need, but maybe the real need is in us. Maybe God needs to do a work in us. And so they begin to confess their sins to one another and pray for one another, like it says in James. They begin to open up about stuff in their lives, about the things that were inadequate, things that had, had just left Jesus out of their lives. And they walked out of that place different. So now, as you can imagine, this went on a little bit later than a normal little prayer time. It's late. They're headed back into town. And as they're walking back into town, they see a couple of drunks there in the ditch just sort of mumbling. But then they get closer. They're not drunk. They're praying. They get over the little hill toward the town. They see lights coming. It's like 1.30 in the morning. And some lights are coming on people's houses because they're so overwhelmed with the idea that they're away from God. They're just woken up with the heaviness of how much they need God. So they call up Duncan Campbell. Not, don't confuse with, with the other Campbell that I mentioned earlier. With Duncan, and they, they called him up to come in and have some preach for them there at Hebrides Islands. And he did, and a great revival broke out. But here's what I want you to understand. That there were, this revival was born out of prayer by people who didn't even realize how much they needed it. Until they made it personal. Until they realized they were like the lay of the sea in church. They felt self-sufficient. We need all this. We don't need all this. It's our culture that needs this. Not us. It's other people that need this. They realized it wasn't others, but they themselves that were in need. This is a picture of our culture. Our culture needs revival. We need revival. You need revival. I need revival. Nobody gets a pass. Nobody. I don't know how you could look around and see what's going on in our culture, in our church, and think, I'm doing okay. Yeah, I wish those other people would get their act together. There, there, there's, there's just no room for that. There's no way you can say, we're just doing okay. So there was a pastor in Houston 
true story. He was going to make a visit to one of his members that was in the hospital in downtown Houston. I've been in Houston some. You avoid downtown at all costs. Because this is going to be a couple of hours to get in and a couple of hours to get out. But as he's making his way in downtown Houston, he remembers, I've got a friend of mine, and he's in the medical profession. He's down here somewhere. I haven't connected with him in years. And so he just sends him a text and says, hey, completely out of the blue. Hey, here I am. I'm in the area. And I just wanted to say hi. He says, great. I'm in the building right next door to where you're going. Let's get together. So he goes over there to his office. He's a doctor now. He goes over to his office and they just sit and they chat. And he asks him, how's he doing? He says, oh, I'm doing fine. I had some heartburn today, though. This really kind of bothered me. He says, yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. And so he tells him more about his heartburn. He says, come with me. He takes him down the hallway to a treadmill. And he says, get on treadmill. Let's do a treadmill test real quick. He gets on the treadmill. You know, they hook him up. He's on there for a couple minutes. And the doctor says, stop right there. Come with me. Walk slowly and come with me. And he says, we're going down to my car and we're going to drive to the building next door. And so they get in his car, drive to the building next door. They put him in a wheelchair and they're rolling him away to an operating room. And he explains to them, you have an artery that's 99% clogged. It's called the Widowmaker artery. And so they do surgery on him, literally saves his life. He thought he just had bad chili the day before, you know, just heartburn. He didn't know. He didn't realize how close to death he was. Right now, I think that's us as a Christian culture. We think, yeah, there's a few little issues, but basically we're doing fine. We're like Laodicea. You know, we're, we're rich. We're well clothed. We can see just fine. And you say, no, you can't. You don't realize. You make me sick because you had no real desire. There's no real connection to me. You're, you're doing church. You're doing your whole life without me. I mean, how can you look at what's going on in our culture and come to any other conclusion than that? I don't know how you can. There's no family in our whole culture that hasn't experienced brokenness to some degree not a single one either it's been divorce or either it's financial stuff or relationship stuff but there's not a single family that hasn't had issues in our culture not a one and we want to sit here and think we're just doing okay we 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 think we're we're you know, we can see we're rich, we're well clothed. But really, all we're doing is we're just learning better on how to do church without Jesus. So, for the next 10 weeks, we're going to be talking about revival. Your small groups are going to be going over the same thing. Some meet every two weeks, some every week, but they're going to be going over the same thing. Next week, we're going to be talking about humility. The first step to revival is there has to be some, you have to be able to admit there's issues. It's got to start there. And so we'll talk about that. And we're going to be going through this week by week. And I'm going to be preaching on the same thing that you're going to be going on in your small group. 
And if you're not involved in a small group, now's your chance. If you felt behind because you didn't get one this morning, you can come tonight at 5 o'clock. Yeah. yeah, just walk up the steps here. You and the other 20 people can be in that. I don't know where they're going to put everybody that they got coming tonight. But anyway, we'll divide up if we have to, but, uh, but that's what's going on. And you can come. And you can be here. And you can come on Wednesday night at 7.15. And have a time of prayer. You can be fasting for this. And I hope you'll take one day. Uh, may not be a day for you. Maybe it's, it's a meal for some of you. I don't. You have to decide for yourself what you want to do. But just don't decide you're not going to do anything. Because all you're doing is, is putting things off of what our culture, what our church, what ourselves, and what you need. If you do that. So take, take a day a week and fast. It may be on Wednesday. It could be on another day. Come and pray if you can with us at 715. And let's seek after God. And let's see if we can do what Jesus urges us to do. To come to him. To get what we need from him. To open our hearts up and let him back in our lives. Let's see if we can do that. So, here's what I would like for you to pray. Lord, deliver me from the lie that I don't need revival. I do not want to settle for powerless Christianity. I realize how disgusting that is to you. Let those statements seek in. And I hope that you can take steps in your personal life to pray that way, to head in this direction this week. Thank you for tuning into the podcast of Grandview Baptist Church in Anchorage, Alaska. For more information, check out our website at gbcak.org.